worship team for leading us so well in worship. And good morning, everybody. How are we doing? In 1 Kings 2, uh, we read these words as the time of King... As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. And as King David uh, said, once said, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. And God, we are glad to be in this house together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I got as we, um, as we consider what you have for us in this area of manhood, I just pray that you would lead and direct our time and that we would hear your voice above all others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how many of you, when you saw the title, Bold Manhood, rolled your eyes, or at the very least got a little nervous. For one thing, a title like that would suggest that today's sermon is intended for only half the audience. And I suppose you could say less than half, which of course is relevant. And so, in fairness, I probably should let some of you off the hook. So, if you are here today and you are a woman, and you are not married, and you don't have any sons, brothers, or a father, and you don't have any friends that are married and you don't work with any men, then you are free to just tune me out and play video games or do some online shopping, whatever you'd like to do. The rest of you, my prayer is that you will find something of value from today's message. Of course, you might have rolled your eyes for other reasons. I know when it comes to this subject of manhood, it isn't always handled well, and it can actually become a topic of division, which is the last thing we need right now. So I wanted to begin by setting the stage. After all, why a message on bold manhood at a time when we have a worldwide pandemic, unrest in our capital, our nation is divided, and honestly, the church, not necessarily LC3, but the church is divided about all of the things that are going on. And I would suggest to you that now is exactly when we need to clarify and have men live out of bold manhood. But that means true manhood. I also want you to understand that that isn't why I chose this topic. I'm here today mostly wearing my family ministries pastor hat, if you will. See, weeks ago, this actually began as a sermon titled, Bold Parenting. And then because of some marriages that Kelly and I have been praying about, I started to sense that maybe the Lord wanted me to preach a message on bold marriage. After all, I... uh, I just officiated my son Kayla's wedding on December 21st, Yahoo. Six down, five to go. How about that one? But certainly marriage, as God's design for marriage, has been top of mind for me. And so that came into view. But the more I prayed and read, and even as Kelly and I talked about conversations we were having in our family and We were helping with other families. I sensed that what God really wanted me to speak about was manhood. I had thought about calling this sermon Biblical Manhood, but decided simply to stick with our Bold Faith series, the theme, and hence the name Bold Manhood. 
So while I'll be talking about manhood, it will be, it will include a look at manhood in the context of family. And honestly, I will tell you, there's a part of me that wishes that Kelly could deliver much of this message. I joked earlier about women being excused from listening today, but the truth is we don't live out biblical manhood in a vacuum. Women, you play such a huge role in how we as husbands and fathers answer our call. Many of you are playing the major role in raising young boys that we hope, as King David prayed for his son Solomon, will take courage and be a man. Of course, it's fair to say that my perspective on bold or biblical manhood would be important as well. After all, I are one. But Kelly is so valuable to me because she reminds me of the ripple effect of what I do as a husband and a father and a brother in Christ. I know this probably won't come as a surprise to you, and you can find these kinds of statistics all over the place. But according to Colorado State University, men commit 83% of murders, 90% of assaults, 93% of domestic and dating violence are attributed to the male partner, 93% of child sexual abuse, 99.5% of rape. Certainly we look at behavior like that and we can't call that bold manhood. There are many in the social sciences that are trying to come up with explanations. You come across terms like toxic masculinity, boys adrift, man-child, where all of these are part of this attempt at explaining the struggle that so many of our young men are having today. So what's the answer? Well, of course, I, there's no way I'm going to fully answer that question in a 30-minute sermon. I know... For me, I've bristled when I would hear terms like toxic masculinity. To me, that should be an oxymoron. But to be fair, when they, what they mean by that term and what I take offense to are different things. But here, here's the thing. I, I did a little digging into that idea of toxic masculinity and here's, here's how they defined the problem. They say it's the cultural ideal of manliness where strength is everything while emotions are a weakness. Where sex and brutality are the yardstick by which men are measured while supposedly feminine traits, which can be, can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual are the means by which your status as man can be taken away. In other words, they would say that things like these statistics that I read are a result of a culture that says that things like strength are good, the macho man, but a culture that also considers emotions as a weakness, boys shouldn't cry. And worse, they say that the, the, the culture says that the yardstick to measure a man by is his, his, and his manliness by is sex and brutality. In fact, they suggest that in this culture that you lose your status as man if you fall short in these areas. So in fairness, when you look at these statistics, you have to conclude we have a problem. And certainly there's a need to look at these cultural norms, this cultural manliness, if you will. But I would suggest we need to do a better job of looking at it through the lens of God's word. After all, Jesus 
wouldn't advocate sex and brutality as the yardstick, yardstick to measure men. I call that pride and sin. It certainly wasn't what he modeled for his followers or for us. What I fear is that writing off anything to do with manhood as toxic masculinity misses the beautiful design that God has for his people. Not just men, but those that suffer or reap the actions of those men. So before we can talk about living out bold manhood in our homes, we must first have an understanding of what are we talking about? So what do I mean by biblical manhood? Tony Evans said, A man striving to live out biblical manhood makes God the foundation for how he conducts himself toward others and how he makes his decisions. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about biblical manhood. I mean, what does it mean as opposed to what I described earlier about the cultural norm for manliness? And then what I'd like to do is take a look at what it looks like when biblical manhood is boldly lived out in marriage and in parenting and in our world today. So first, the idea of biblical manhood, and for that matter, I would say, suggest to you, biblical womanhood is much bigger than just a simple definition. There is a sense where it affects and permeates every area of our life, and every area of our life is different. So for the sake of giving you something you can remember, I'm going to steal an acronym from a friend of mine, John Kitna. Some of you might remember John when he played quarterback for the Seahawks. After he retired the first time, he moved into Lakewood. This was several years ago, and he called me and he explained that whenever he would move, because he moved a few times because of the NFL, he said he'd find someone to mentor him. He told me, for instance, when he was in Dallas, he was mentored by Tony Evans, and he was wondering if I would mentor him. No pressure there. <laughs> After I made sure he understood I am not Tony Evans, I, of course, agreed to do that. And honestly, I'm not sure how much he got out of that. But we did have some great conversations about marriage and parenting, to be sure. At any rate, one of the things that John has done a great job of over the years is discipling young men. And he uses this acronym. And honestly, this acronym, I first saw this uh, acronym in the book Raising a Modern Day Knight. And, and so he's, he's changed that up a little bit. But earlier I shared that there's a lot of misconceptions and wrong thinking, I would tell you, about what it means to be a man. So I like that he chose an acronym, R-E-A-L, REAL to talk about what does it mean to be a real man. And here's what that real stands for, and then I'll talk about each one of them. The R-E-A-L stands for R, rejects passivity. The E stands for engages God. The A stands for accepts responsibility. And the L stands for leads courageously. So let's start with the R, rejects passivity. Of course, the best example of biblical manhood is Jesus. He is and always will be the gold standard, what we strive to be, to be more like Jesus. But I think there are also valuable lessons to be learned from other Bible characters like Daniel and Caleb and Joshua and Paul and King David. And when you think of David, of course, the story that often comes to mind is the story of Goliath. In fact, the story of David and Goliath has been used as an example in Christian and non-Christian circles alike. In 1 
Samuel 17, we read about David, the youngest of eight boys. His father sent him to the battlefront to deliver food and supplies to his brothers. Once he was there, like all the other Israelites, he witnessed the defiant giant, Goliath of Gath, challenging anyone from God's army to face him. And of course, there were no takers. In fact, the Bible says that they heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. Well, eventually David finds a way to get an audience with King Saul and this young boy, we read in verse 32, says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, Saul wasn't super excited about this idea, sending this little boy to go fight this giant, but eventually he it takes some convincing, but you know the story. David picks up five smooth stones, and then the Bible says in verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Don't miss the point of this illustration. While the rest of Israel's men were passive and fearful, David ran into the battle. Not simply because he was this macho man. He told King Saul he would fight Goliath because the Lord who delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. See, he rejected passivity, not because he felt that he was more manly than Goliath, but because he knew he could trust his God. And if you don't believe that, then consider the E, engage as God. In your notes, I think I put in parentheses, empathizes with others, because when John would use this in a secular environment, he couldn't use engage as God, and so he used empathizes with others, which is a good sermon point too for another day. Engages God certainly fits much more what I want to talk about when it comes to bold manhood. See, on the one hand, you have warrior David. He killed Goliath. The people used to chant, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. But he's also who King Saul called upon. We read in 1 Samuel 16, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. David was a worship leader. David is also who wrote half of the Psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Psalm 51, Lord, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We see biblical manhood not just because he rejected passivity, but also because he engaged with God. Or think of what the, Micah, uh, the prophet Micah tells us about what God wants in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then the A, accepts responsibility. One of the reasons why I like using David is he wasn't perfect. He had his flaws. And 
if you are a Christ follower trying to do justice, trying to love kindness and walk humbly with God, then you too, like me, have your flaws. And they will rear their ugly head. And when they do, the question is, what will you do? In 2 Samuel, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then commits murder with her husband Uriah. When the prophet Nathan is sent by God to confront David, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, Psalm 51 that I read a piece from earlier is David's psalm of repentance after being confronted by Nathan. If you ever find yourself needing to have a repentant heart, I would strongly suggest you do what I've done. Open up your Bible to Psalm 51 and pray the words of Psalm 51 directly to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, biblical manhood means controlling one's emotions and passions, but it also means accepting responsibility when we fall short, and we will. And then finally, the L leads courageously. You know, leadership has become such a twisted and convoluted conversation in our current culture. And I want to be clear, you don't have to be the king of Israel to lead courageously. I love the picture Jesus gives us when it comes to leadership. Earlier, the disciples had argued about who would be greatest, who would sit at his right and his left. Now they're together having dinner with the Lord for the last time, and it was time for a lesson in leadership. In essence, Jesus is saying to them, you want to be great? You want to lead? Here's what that means. And then we read in John 13, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, to lead courageously means what Jesus said in Matthew 23:11. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We call that servant leadership. It's the way to lead courageously. That's what it takes to have biblical manhood. So how does a real man live out biblical or bold manhood in real life? Well, entire books and seminars have been written just to begin tackling that question. So I'm certainly not going to cover that completely. But remember where I said this sermon started with me considering what God would have me preach about parenting and marriage. So I'd like to at least take a little glimpse at how this plays out in those two areas for sure. And then maybe for a moment, just consider what biblical manhood looks like as we interact with the world. So let's take marriage. And if you're not married, please don't tune me out right now. You know people who are married and who knows, you very well may be married one day. But as Kelly and I have coached and counseled couples over the years, I can tell you that almost chief among the topics of greatest need and simultaneously, the greatest confusion is that of leadership. If biblical manhood includes leading courageously, what does that look like for marriage in 2021? 
Or maybe we've just outgrown that idea as some archaic thing. And if that's the case, here's the challenge. We all have to decide what are we going to do with the Bible? See, if we believe it is the inspired Word of God, which, by the way, here at Lake City, we absolutely believe that, then when it comes to marriage, you have to deal with verses like 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Or Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. First of all, the point of today's sermon isn't to fully unpack these verses. That's for another sermon. In fact, when Paul Ward, who leads our worship on Saturday night, called me, he uh, wanted to talk about what I was preaching about because he was trying to pick the songs. He asked me a great question. He asked, what is maybe one of your goals you're hoping to accomplish with this sermon? And my answer was simply this. My prayer coming into today was that today's sermon would certainly be pertinent and challenging for the men. And men, I hope that is the case. But that everyone would leave here today believing that God's design for manhood is not only right because it's God's design, but it's best for men because that's how he wired us to live out our calling. But here's the key. My prayer also was that everyone would recognize that biblical manhood is what's best for everyone. Biblical manhood is what will make a marriage one flesh. It's what will allow children to honor their father and their mother. See, biblical manhood isn't something that values men and everyone else just puts up with it. At the end of the day, when husbands get this right, their wives are the greatest benefactors. So with verses like these two, and trust me, there are many others, you can decide that you just don't believe the Bible, and that's certainly your choice. But if you believe that this is the Word of God, then you have to read these verses and decide, how am I going to walk in these? And God so often invites us into this tension as we navigate this in our Christian walk. Can I share with you something that has been on my heart all week? And I can only speak truly for myself, but it wouldn't surprise me if much of what I'm going to share with you, say to you, the other LC3 pastors would say, Amen. I want you to know I count it such a privilege, such a trust for God to have called me into this role that puts me at this pulpit doing what the book of Timothy says, rightly dividing the word of truth. I mean, every time, every time, I'm humbled that you would come and that you would listen. Some of you are even taking notes, imagine that. Of course, on the flip side, I so often feel a heavy and deep responsibility with that. I'd like to believe it's a healthy responsibility, but I can tell you not always. I've had sleepless nights before considering what I feel God is asking me to say. I pray and I ask God to direct my preparation. I can't remember a time I've spent less than 20 hours preparing for a 30-minute message. Of course, that probably just speaks to how slow I am more than anything else. But 
My point is this. We wrestle over these sermons. That doesn't mean we get them perfect. I certainly believe often it's inspired and not the same way that the Word of God is inspired, but inspired. But it means that we never take for granted what we are called to do. The challenge often is, how far should our preaching go? Like today, it would be much easier for me to simply present some verses that speak about biblical manhood, tell you what they mean, and then leave it at that. It would be much simpler to preach the gospel, teach who wrote the book, where, is, where it was written, what does the original Greek say, therefore what does that mean in today's vernacular? But part of our call is that of shepherd, which means at times we step into helping our flock apply the word of God so they can navigate the Christian life. So when there are verses like the ones I just read about male headship, we wrestle with not only what does it say, but then we take the next hard step and consider, therefore, this is how we live that out. You don't get to argue with the verse itself, I guess, again, unless you just don't want to believe the Bible, and that's your choice. But you certainly can disagree with where we land on how to live that verse out. And obviously, there are some verses that are more easily applied and dissected than others, and others that are harder. And if I could, I'd like to talk about another example from last week. Pastor Jim spoke on some of the prophetic signs that we are seeing in the world. He also shared a verse from 2 Thessalonians 2 that spoke of lawlessness, and I know that created some discussion as to what is meant by the word, that word lawlessness. And based on Pastor Jim's example, how Pastor Jim intended everyone to consider this idea of lawlessness. So again, we don't get to argue with the fact that the Bible speaks of lawlessness. And as pastors, we can teach what we believe Paul means by the word lawless, lawlessness. And if we stop there, we've preached a pretty safe sermon. But when we keep going, as Pastor Jim did, sometimes you end up using your own perspective and opinion about how that applies to us today. Sometimes not in a way that others might agree. Sometimes not in a way that we should. Sometimes you could certainly argue just incomplete. I'll let you know that Pastor Jim and I spoke, and he's actually recording a message that he's sending out to the congregation about some of this. But all that to say, he does know that I'm sharing this with all of you. To be clear, when Paul speaks of lawlessness, I believe he absolutely is referring to both turning your back on God's law. In 1 John 3, 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So sin is certainly lawlessness. And at the same time, the word translated lawlessness also means iniquity. So think injustice. So not only are we talking about sin and breaking God's law, which would include a consideration of Romans 13. And for those that don't know, Romans 13 is where we are instructed as believers to obey our authority. But it would also take into account injustice of any kind, which is why Proverbs 31 and Exodus 23, Hebrews 13, Isaiah 58, all speak to standing up against injustice or iniquity. I also believe, as is true with so much of Scripture, that lawlessness too speaks of the heart. In other words, being in a state of lawlessness. For instance, if I drive 65 on the freeway, which I've been known to do, I'm sure none of you ever do that, 
But if I drive 65 on the freeway, I am breaking the law. But I'm not in a state of lawlessness. If one, characterize, if one is characterized as obeying the rule of law, does it make them lawless when they speed on the freeway? And obviously that opens up a whole conversation of living out the Christian life well. I remember early in my coaching career, I had this lineman that could not remember the snap count to save his life. So he was always jumping off sides. So much so that we finally just said, everything's on one. Because he could not remember the snap count. So even though he was breaking the law, the rules of football, I wouldn't consider him lawless. Of course, I've played with a few guys over the years that were absolutely, by definition of lawlessness, lawless. They didn't feel the rules applied to them and they pushed them every place they could. But I want to be clear, lawlessness, sin, knows no color. It knows no political party. It knows no gender. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This summer, it was lawlessness, sin, to burn down and loot businesses. I absolutely believe that. But it is also lawlessness, iniquity, racial injustice that has plagued our country for hundreds of years and continues to plague our country today. They're both lawlessness. And to be sure, what happened in Washington this week was lawlessness. Based on how I read scripture, all three are examples of lawlessness. And as a church, I believe we must speak out against that. And if you think that flirts with being political, let me mention one more thing that some have been asking about. How does this fit into this conversation about lawlessness? And that's the question of whether or not to abide by all of the governor's mandates, or are we then just becoming one of those that are lawless? And I will tell you, I'm probably not going to give you a sufficient answer, and certainly not an answer we can all agree on. I would encourage you to read the letter the elders put out regarding LC3's position on this. But the reality is other churches and Christian leaders have considered Scripture and landed in different places. Our church is prayerfully and thoughtfully asking the question, how do we respond in this cultural moment? In Acts 17, Paul lived in and he addressed the culture that he was in. Well, we are in America 2021, and we must navigate what it looks like to honor God and also be true to Romans 13 and honor our authority. Once again, we can't, once again, we all agree that the Bible is God's word. We divide it as rightly as we can. And then we trust God to work through our imperfections and to be honored. And if I could, let me share one more of my favorite quotes. And this is by C.S. Lewis. Lewis believed that our desires that God is, our desires that we have, God's put there. And he's put them there uh, because they were made to be satisfied. And I love this quote. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. And I, in this cultural moment, I believe that wholeheartedly. Whew, that was a long way from manhood and marriages. So thanks for letting me go there. But I do want to come back to marriage because there is more. 
Not only do I believe God is calling us as men to be servant leaders in our home, which, which means everything from providing for our family to protecting our family. And by the way, I want you to know providing doesn't mean just physical needs. And there certainly is not a formula for how that provision happens. But it's the principle of servant leadership that says, I will love my spouse enough to courageously lead, to do whatever it takes. But it also means to love our wives as Christ loved the church. If you've heard me speak on this, you know that I can go off on this one. There is so much to say about unconditional love. But it's the reminder that when Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't because the church was beautiful. It was to make the church beautiful. And it's the reminder in 1 Peter 3, 7 that we should treat our wives as precious and valuable, like fine china. And lastly, Paul fully puts the onus for a healthy marriage on men. After all, the reason we know that Christ loved the church is because he loved the church first. He didn't wait on the church and we can't wait on our wives. When things get sideways, men, you take the first step to getting things right. And I have to do this. I promised my wife that I would say to you ladies in the room, this sermon's not to weaponize you to go home and beat up your husbands. All right, honey, I said it. Okay, parenting. Let's talk about parenting. I almost changed my mind about even considering this one because it truly is a sermon all into itself. But it's worth me mentioning a few things about bold manhood, or in this case, you might say bold fatherhood. According to boycrisis.org, and I want you to listen to some of the things their research has uncovered, I want to first preface these findings with this. There is, There are a lot of reasons for fatherlessness. It's a complicated conversation, and I recognize that. It's not a simple, you know, oh, there's fatherless. There's, there's a lot that goes into the issue of fatherlessness. And I also want to say that if you're a single parent, please hold on, because I do have some thoughts for you that I'll share in a minute. But these statistics just help highlight the importance that fathers play in a child's life and why God would place parenting as important for bold or biblical manhood. So listen to this. The more frequently a father visits the hospital of an infant who is born prematurely, so premature baby gets visited often by a father, the more quickly the infant is released from the hospital and the better the infant's social, personal development and ability to adapt. Among criminals assessed as raping out of anger and rage, 80% came from father-absent homes. Adolescents with minimal or no father involvement accounts for 71% of high school dropouts. Among youth in prison, 85% grew up in a fatherless home. In a study of more than 12,000 teenagers after divorce, I had to read this one like three times because I didn't believe it. Children living with single dads fared better than children living with single moms. So obviously everything that I said earlier about marriage and about providing and protecting apply to our children as well. But men, there is an added piece of discipleship when it comes to our role as fathers. And you know at Lake City, we believe parents are the first and best disciplers of their own kids. That's why we have 
these campaigns and these tools that we give you because we want to give parents the tools they need so that they can have faith conversations with their kids. And dads, we want you to lead the way in that. And part of biblical manhood is accepting responsibility. See, it's too easy to just pass the burden off to our wives, especially if you have a wife like mine who's a hundred times better at anything that involves our children. I mean, it can be intimidating, and it would have been easy for me to simply say, look, you take care of them, and let me know if you need anything. I'll be over here. But guys, servant leadership demands more than that of us. So just a few practical suggestions, guys. You can take the lead on family devotions or opening up God's Word. You can ask your wife for time to sit down together and talk about a plan, about how you're going to disciple your children, what needs to happen, who's going to do what. You lead the way in your family's involvement at church. Now, if all this is already taking place, then great. But I can tell you from experience, so often that's not what's happening. Bold manhood means being intentional about all of this. And then, if I could, just say a couple of words to you single parents. Especially after hearing all of those statistics that I mentioned. First, I want you to just know you are my hero. Raising kids with two of us actively involved just about killed me at times. I... I can't imagine doing it alone. And I want you to know your church family wants to be here for you. I'm, we don't always know for sure what that means, but let us try. Single moms, those statistics that I just read about fatherless homes, they aren't the final say. They just highlight for the church at large the importance of dads being involved. For you, single moms, know that there are men in our church that can help be a positive male influence on your kids. I know there's more to all of that than just simply doing it, but the statistics of kids that have a healthy male influence in their life suggest the effort is worth it. And if there are any single dads, the same thing. I know there are women in this church that would spend time with your kids in a healthy way. Again, not simple, but worth the effort. Or if you just need a break, if you just need a break, consider leaning on your church family, especially if you're in a small group or a ministry. Let them know so they can step in and help, give you some respite care. Nobody should have to do this alone. And I confess, as the church, we say we want to help, but oftentimes we just don't know what that looks like. So help us figure that out. And then finally... Let me just say a couple of words about the world. And I included this one because manhood can't stop with our family. Our church needs you. Our community needs you. Lord knows our country needs you. And Jesus' mission calls us to care about the whole world. And it means that depending on where you are in your personal journey, that you may need to get discipled. You may need to do some things to grow personally and spiritually. But I'm asking you, I'm challenging you to put yourself in a position so that you can be used and then ask the Lord to show you what, God, what do you have for me? Where is it that you want me to step into the world and be a part of your mission? Because I'll tell you, 
You can't be a real man in a vacuum. When it comes to biblical bold manhood, rejecting passivity means speaking up. It means standing up when the need arises. Engaging God requires more than just sitting in a room by yourself reading the Bible. It's fellowship, it's community, it's discipleship, it's accountability. That's how you grow. Accepting responsibility isn't a lone ranger proposition. Having other men in your life to hold you accountable is the way to accept responsibility. Leading courageously means stepping out of your comfort zone and being a leader in your marriage, in your home, at Lake City. I mean, that's why, guys, we have the men's leadership class every year to help men understand what it looks like to lead to lead in our homes, to lead a church, to lead in the world. So I've, I've offered just a few next steps. The first one, for men on the first one, I will pray for, if you're married, I will pray for my wife every day for the next 21 days. The 21 day challenge. Just will you commit for the next 21 days that you will pray for your wife. Couples that are married, you should know I'm going to do this. I will attend Reengage. Reengage is our marriage ministry. Happens every Thursday night at 6:30. If you can't come this Thursday, great. Come next Thursday. We'll still be here. It's a great ministry. Small group in design uh, to walk through. And it, if your marriage is strong and you just want it to be stronger, it's a great place to do that. If your marriage is stuck and you just want to get it unstuck, it's a great place to do that. If your marriage is on life support, it's a great way to great place to come. Second, men, I will attend the men's ministry event February 6th. And if you have a son, I would say with your son. Caleb and his team have a kickoff event February 6th at 9 a.m. And so men, if you are able, you should be there. It's part of that being involved with others and then for everyone, uh, or everyone else, the women, I would ask you to intentionally pray for a man in your life. So that could be your husband, that could be your son, that could be your father, could be a coworker, but some man in your life. You heard the, you heard what I just preached. It's hard. There's a challenge that we face right now. So is there a man that God would put on your heart that you would pray for? Intentionally pray for. And then finally, number three, I will take part in the Pray For Me campaign. I want you to watch this video and then I'll share with you a little bit of the few of the details.
How can we get more adults connected with more children? The Pray For Me campaign, we did it last year and we're doing it again. It's happening on January 24th. Uh, it'll be right after the 11 o'clock service. Uh, you come and uh, it's fantastic. We had a lot of people involved last year and we're looking forward to it again this year. The, the heart of it is simply this, that we would get three generations of adults praying for every teen. Uh, and what a beautiful picture when you think of that, that every teen would have uh, three generations of people. And so what we ask you to do is to sign up and say, I will pray for one of our, one of our students. And uh, we'd love for you to be here on the 24th, but even if you can't be here, just sign up and let us know and we'll get you connected to one of our students. And the great thing is it's a little bit like when you, when they seed a pond for fishing and you throw your hook in and you catch it. The great thing is once you are here, we'll divide up into the three generations and the kids will come around and they will literally ask you, will you pray for me? And because it's the seeded pond, your answer will be yes, which is so fun for the kids to ask you to pray for them and have you say yes. And and then to know that there's three adults that are praying for them. And so please consider coming. There'll be a sack lunch so that, you know, you don't have to go home hungry. Um, but there's a table out in the, in the gathering area that you can sign up or you can go online under the family ministries tab and sign up digitally. We'd love for you to, to sign up and be a part of the pray for me campaign. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. Thank you that you go before us. Thank you that you are our rock, even when uh, things seem turbulent and uncertain. And God, I do just want to lift up a prayer for the men in this room, the men that are listening online. I want to ask God your blessing on them. I want to pray, God, that you would speak to them, that they would know just uh, how much you are for them. Lord, I pray against the enemy that would try to speak lies and plant seeds of doubt and fear. Lord, instead, I just pray that they would just know that you are for them. If you are for them, who could be against them? So God, thank you. I thank you, Lord, also for all the women in the room. God, we don't live out biblical manhood in a vacuum, and I'm so grateful for all the women that are part of that, that process that you use to grow us into the men that you want us to be. So thank you, God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.